0: seems brighter than usual. Good morning. I'm excited to get to work through the next section of the book of Judges. Zach's been pretty clear about what Judges is about. If you haven't read Judges, it's kind of the same thing over and over again. A cycle of salvation, apostasy, and sin, and then crying out to the Lord, and then the Lord raising up a judge and saving Israel over and over again. We're going to talk about Gideon this morning. You know, Zach, again, he said you're going you're gonna to do Gideon, and I was like, okay, Gideon's three chapters, and he said, well, I don't care what you do from it, but I'm not going to say Gideon when I get up there to preach, so I'm picking up after the story of Gideon, which is fine, but it was a real struggle. If you haven't read the story of Gideon, chapters basically six through eight, um, you ought to read it in its entirety. I, I'm not going to be able to spend the entire time on its entirety but we're going to focus in on kind of the beginning of it and then we're going to talk about Gideon's successes and go from there now I want to go ahead and ask you to get your Bibles out if you have them um, on your phone whatever it is I want you to follow along with your own Bible Um, don't trust me and actually even more than a typical sermon there's there's a there's a little bit of a test in here that's coming up later on about your ability to read along with me while I read and that'll make sense in a moment So as we talk about Gideon today, I'm going to start right off the bat before we even read and acknowledge this is the big truth that I think we will walk away with today in the totality of the story, even if we spend a little more time in some specific areas. And that's the big truth is this, God is glorified in the weakness of his obedient people. God is glorified in the weakness of his obedient people. Now we'll start right in Judges chapter 6, verses 1. We're going to read 1 through 10 to start. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel because of the Midian, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of their land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And drove them out before you and gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Our first big idea, and we could spend an entire sermon here, is that God's judgment is evidence of his faithfulness to His word and his people. God's judgment is evidence of his faithfulness to his words and his people. Now I have three points under this big idea that I'm going to try to make this morning because I think this As it stands, is even almost a controversial issue. But let's point number one is that God is gracious to determine what is evil. God is gracious to determine for us what is evil. Um, If there's been any trend in the last 100 years, and I mean we're reading a book right now in my my men's book study group on this Carl Truman book, um, "Strange New World," which is like a shorter treatise to the rise and triumph of the modern self, a book that he wrote. And one of the main points that this book is attempting to make is the fact that we have strayed, and this talks specifically in one chapter, from the idea of a sacred text as the governor, a sacred truth as the determiner of what is right and wrong, good or evil. And that in straying from that truth, we end up in a place where we are right now where literally our secular society has no category for what is evil. We see in verse 1 that what they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see later on in the book of Judges that that expression gets modified a little bit and basically says they did what was right in their own eyes and the fact is those are almost interchangeable expressions except one of them, this one, is trying to say, look, in the eyes of the Lord is what matters here. Not in the eyes of your own heart, not in the eyes of society because we have obviously entered a stage where that which is good is called evil and that which is evil is called good in in our world. And so in the eyes of god they had done what was evil and listen i'm going to say this to you because it's very easy for us to sit in a church in a relatively conservative context and look out the windows and say man the people out there have got it all they've got it all wrong they're doing what's evil in the sight of the lord and maybe not necessarily look in the mirror or look at ourself or look at our family and say where am i in this Am I doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord? We, we very quickly like to use scripture as like a window into the lives of other people instead of a mirror into our own, our own hearts. And I would caution you against that because I think I have a feeling that's exactly what the Israelites did to end up in this position in the first place. Was that they spent a lot of time in judgment of the surrounding communities instead of looking at them at themselves. Now, as God, the determiner of evil, he didn't just determine it and keep us from it. He determined it and then defined it for us. And he was very explicit and very simple. And I'm going to paraphrase this just a little bit, but I would say God is is gracious to define what is evil, my second point, and that he does that in the blessings in Deuteronomy chapter 28, for example, when he says, if you do these things, you will get this. And what it is is just to obey the commands of God and do what he has said. That's the simplicity. That's the, the, the paraphrase there. But then as he defines what is evil, he shows where the Israelites stand and says, now that's what's good. Now what's evil? And it's pretty simple. Deuteronomy 28, 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God to be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, Brooke nudged me during scripture reading because I had 15 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 read for scripture. And you're probably like, is this the sermon? This is just keeps going and going. I think it's important because something we all need to understand is that when we see ever since the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch in Christianity, we tend to call it, everything thereafter from literally the next book all the way through from Joshua all the way to Revelation is going to reference the Pentateuch. It never loses its value. It never loses its significance. It matters the entire time. It matters for all time. Okay, and so it's important that we understand that even in this moment, in the book of the Judges, when, he, when the Israelites they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, that the fact of the matter is, what they had done was in contradiction to what they ought to have done for the blessing in Deuteronomy 28, and instead they got the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, I want to be careful here. I, I have become a huge believer that, that Deuteronomy 6 ought to be for our parents or anyone that has young people or responsible for the next generation in any capacity, you should know Deuteronomy chapter 6 and you should think about it every single day because the burden of what your children or this next generation knows falls to you as parents, falls to you as adults, falls to you as youth leaders. I mean, I look at Garrett sitting here who's got our you know, middle and high school kids and I think sometimes about what Garrett's doing and I think, that job, I, I've got middle school, it terrifies me. Not because middle and high school kids are crazy but because of the burden the burden that rests on someone working with the next generation will they know these things sometimes we don't go to the end of deuteronomy 6 where he says and the reason for this is so that when your sons come and ask you why do we do these things you can say look what the lord has done and i think it's critical that that's the case and that we spend energy there but listen to this in this story of Gideon, i think what we're going to see here in just a moment Gideon did know these things. Gideon knew them. His family had told him. He knows what his family had said about the rescue from Egypt. He knows the stories. So, my question as soon as we hit Gideon, as I'm reading in preparation for this and studying, one of the first things that hits me is well, wait a second. He knows that this is the case. Then, why are they in this position that we just read, where they're having their land trampled and everything taken from if they knew? And the only conclusion that i could really come to is this it is one thing to tell the next generation what they should know about god and it is another thing to live it before them in order to make it real as a parent probably one of the most convicting things in my life is to feel on occasion that what i profess to my own children to be true they don't necessarily see in me my behaviors contradict what i believe when i talk to them about Fruits of the Spirit, let me see gentleness in you. And then 30 seconds later, I bite somebody's head off in the kitchen. Do they hear the things from me? Could my kids quote some scripture to you? They probably could. Do they believe that it's true to be obedient to God because they've seen it in me and they trust it because of my behaviors? And I wonder if that's not exactly what happened to the Israelites, if what we see happening here is they had heard the truths as they watched their parents slip into the worship of the local gods. And I think that that burden is on us just the same. Continuing down just a little bit, let's just bump for a second to the last verse that I just read, which is this where it says in verse 10, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And guys, I think this is what God is saying in a kind of a backwards way. You feared the God of the Amorites, not me. You feared some gods. Not this God. I think that's the point that really is being made. I think he is trying to drive home to them that they have assimilated to the degree that they no longer fear the God of the Bible. And there's an expression for this. You've probably heard it. It's called syncretism. I don't know if you've ever heard of syncretism. We oftentimes love to apply it to some of the problems when Christianity attempts to spread in, like, the East, for example, or in, in, in Asia, And the reason it's a problem, we hear this expression, is because what happens a lot of times is that Christianity is taken, for example, to a Hindu or Buddhist community, and the gospel is proclaimed, and the result is that they take Jesus and Christianity, and they plug it in, and they accord it with their existing religious philosophy. And we call that syncretism. They've got some Christianity with their Hinduism. In fact, I have had conversations with Hindus who will say pretty explicitly, Oh, I believe in your Jesus, too. He's great. We love your Jesus. Now, as a Christian, if you walk away from that going, great, that was easy, then that would be an error, because what's happened is is they've taken Jesus and made Jesus among the other gods that they worship, and this is called syncretism, and we can once again, we can look to Asia and say, this is a big problem in the Hindu and Buddhist culture, but do we look in American Fort Collins Mountain West and say, how much have we taken the God of this scripture and assimilated and syncretized this God with the gods of the secular age? Do we worship the other things that exist alongside God in the context of our life in Fort Collins, Colorado? And I think this is what we have to wrestle with because I, do not, I don't believe that the Israelites went in, didn't do their due diligence in dispossessing the land, and then just surrendered to the gods immediately. I do not believe that happened. I think it's irrational. I think what happened is they worked in, they were around the other gods and the people, and they allowed their... Their, the promises made to israel and what we would call now modern day judaism they want we want to see that blend with the religions of their of their geography and otherwise and i think it's important that we recognize that that's the case and again that we are have the propensity towards the same things it is very very easy to be a christian in the united states of america for the most part it's very easy i read a great babylon b headline the other day that literally just said persecution report ladies persecuted because no one's asked about her day-by-day bible calendar on her desk it's funny but it's kind of true now are there is there an increase in the persecution of the christian there absolutely is and we are going to see i think a a separation between actual professing believers and people that are not actually believers i think we're going to watch that happen um, over the next little bit in our country But the fact of the matter is, is this syncretism, this idea, is a very easy thing for us to do, which is to go in and not necessarily obey what God has said because we've blended with what the community is, even though we know it. So, last point, God is gracious to describe the consequences for evil. Now listen, you're going to think what I'm about to read comes straight out of Judges 6 that we just read, and it doesn't. Again, this is from Deuteronomy later on in chapter 28, and here's what it reads. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you you shall betray the wife but another man shall ravish her you shall build a house but you shall not dwell in it you shall plant a vineyard but you shall not enjoy its fruit your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes but you shall not eat any of it your donkey shall be seized before your face but shall not be restored to you your sheep shall be given to your enemies but there shall be no one to help you your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with the longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. So we see this, and we see something really clear here. And I think our tendency is to go, gosh, that is harsh. That is harsh. That's what we think. Instead of, God is faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. He said it exactly. He did the exact same thing that he said he was going to do. His judgment on the Israelites is evidence of his faithfulness to us, to his word, and even to the Israelites to do what he says. Because the flip side of that is do these things and be blessed, and I will give you all that you need. And when they failed, they look, and they look at him and judge, what have you done? And he said, I told you exactly what I was going to do. Several generations ago at this point. He is gracious to tell us, here is the consequence of this beforehand. And we can see it in our daily life every single day. And here is what I, I, I again, I could spend a lot of time here and I'm gonna, I need to move on. But you could sit here for a while and evaluate your life and see how the Lord has worked in direct accordance with his promises. When you've gone through trial and turmoil, when you've gone through suffering, and you can see how this will accord but we're going to move on because we need to move on and we only have so much time but here's what i want you to think i want you to leave that section with this idea god's judgment is evidence of his faithfulness that you can trust him that he does what he says okay let's move on verse 11 now the angel of the lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to joash the abuserite while his son gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the midianites make sure you're following along here And the angels of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to them, The Lord is with us, even after we have abandoned his commands, even after we've turned to our own way, seeking after our own gain, assimilating with the religions of the people we were supposed to dispossess. God is with us, even as we forsake his promises, ignore his counsel and trample his glory. Incredible. How loving is Yahweh. We are not worthy of such love. Now, if you were following along, you know that's not what Gideon said that's just what Gideon should have said that's what he should have said but Gideon in his stubbornness like us sits cowering in the wine press in fear looking out at the mountains looking at the people of Israel in the caves and says instead please my lord if the lord is with us why has all this happened to us and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? He looks out and complains. The Lord is with you, oh mighty man of valor. Nah. Don't think so. The next big idea is that we... Ought not make God's provision, mistake God's provision for God himself. Now, I want to be real careful here, because this is an easy place to come and, like, throw punches, and that's not my intent. I think we ought to look at our circumstances, and we ought to ask sometimes, where is God? I think we have a great model for that in scripture. If you've never read the Psalms, the Psalms are not some great big glory story The majority of the Psalms are David saying, Come on, God. I think it makes sense. The family that bought mine and Brooks Farm, the Lang family, when we left Frankfurt, their grandson just died at three months old out of nowhere. They don't know Jesus. And I don't know what they're thinking right now, but I bet you a million dollars they're thinking, Where is God? on the flip side of that from a christian perspective i got to sit with carl who we know's is going through cancer treatment right now and got to have one of the most encouraging two and a half hour long conversations of my life as a believer who's sitting there in the midst of suffering who's spending his time reading theological books to draw nearer to god there is a difference there but both there's an understanding to say why god in either of those instances if we were to say and look at our circumstances and say, based on these circumstances, I am going to judge God's faithfulness to me. If we were to make that error, then what would that say about the apostles who all were martyred? What would it say about John Bunyan who refused to leave prison because he would not stop preaching the gospel and he was spent the last years of a life away from his family while his kids died off? What would it say about Jim Elliot, who's speared on the beaches of that little village in Quito, Ecuador, without ever getting to share the gospel with the Harani tribe after years of preparation? What would it say if they had qualified their circumstances as the indicator of God's love for them? What would it say? And this is exactly what Gideon's doing. Now, where does that come from? And I'm going to argue, and let, let let me not leave out a group here, because Courtney Williams said something that struck me when we were doing our, we're doing a study in the second service that's about six christians everyone should know and it's basically missionaries that have had a huge impact on the church over the course of centuries and one of the things she said was i think it's important that we not forget the people in our own age that can be really encouraging for us when we think about missionaries and work for the gospel and let me just give a nod to that specifically to say if we judge our circumstances and god's favor based on how we feel about how we're living then that would speak very lowly of the countless unnamed missionaries in the 1040 window that will die in obscurity and no one will know their name until years after they're dead and that's a reality right now in 2022 so i think it's important that we don't fall into that trap now i think there's a bigger problem that is being revealed in this passage if i'm just being really candid and maybe it's because it's my own heart as i read it and maybe this is even on the brink of of Jesus because i look at this and think wait is he what if he says this sentence there's got to be some standard that's god's falling short of it's making him say this and here is what i what i fear i fear that and this is going to be a a bold statement and i'll take criticism for it afterwards i love to argue i i think there will be a lot more than anywhere else in the world a lot of professing christians who will be turned away from heaven in this country because they will have treasured the gifts of god more than god himself I'm terrified of it in my own life. And I think that's very much a reality that we are facing. And I think, frankly, when Gideon's immediate response is, I heard about these deeds, where are they? I think what he is suggesting is is that the deeds or the absence thereof is how his faith or the Israelites' faith, faith would ebb and flow in the course of the narrative. And listen, you know... As we get ready and we look forward to Durango and, and church planning in Durango, and I'm working on my sermon yesterday morning, and I sit in my camper. That's my new office. I'm telling you, there's nothing better than turning on the AC in my driveway, shutting the doors, putting my over-ear Beats headphones on. I'm so much more productive. I had no idea how much these kids just really crushed my productivity from home. <laughs> I mean, it is unbelievable. I'm just crushing work. And I'm sitting there, and, I'm, and, and, I'm, and I see a head bob by the window of my office, and I lean over and look out, and a few seconds later, I see one of my kids on a scooter and one on a skateboard and one on a bike with their spike ball net and their bathing suits and towels around their neck headed to the pool, and the first thing that went through my brain is like, I don't want to leave this. I don't want to leave this. This This is every kid's dream. It's every dad's dream. Like, look at this. They're like living the summer from the 70s. You can still do this in America? This is crazy. And I loved it. And I loved it. And as I'm preparing this sermon, I thought, oh, do I love it more than I love Jesus? I love Horsetooth Mountain. I love Horsetooth Reservoir. I love the Poudre River. I love our friendships up and down our cul-de-sac. I mean, we know everybody in our cul-de-sac on a first-name basis. We have our our my streets named Ambrosia. We renamed it a few years ago, Jambrosia. And it's because all of our neighbors go sit out and play music and party in the cul-de-sac and chat and let our kids run around and go crazy and we burn fires we block the street off as if we own it i'm not kidding and we just take it's our street and we love it we love our cul-de-sac and i look around at this and i think to myself shame on me if my affection for god rests on the blessings that he has given me shame on me but i feel it i feel the propensity towards it I feel the direct connection between looking at my life and what I have that I do not earn and say, these things are love-worthy. And I'm guilty, and I think that all of us ought to look to our circumstances and be careful that we're not Jonah. And if you haven't read the book of Jonah, it's not about a whale. It's about a man and it's an awesome story about a man, and it's some of the most powerful theology in all of the Bible in a matter of a handful of pages. And what I'll tell you is, is this sticks out to me about Jonah. In chapter 4, I won't read the entire thing, but essentially, Jonah goes to sit under a, in a booth under a plant, and the Lord makes a plant go up and covers over Jonah, and Jonah is exceedingly glad, it says, until the Lord brings a worm to kill the plant and Jonah cries, and the Lord says, you do well to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's like, yep. and He says, that's because you love the plant, not the of the plant. The plant that showed up one day and disappeared the next day because I am that powerful. You love that plant. And I think that's our lives as Christians. We love the plants. We love the shade. Does our affection terminate on those things? Or through those things do we love God more and say, what do you want from me, Lord? I would ask you to consider these things in your own life for just a second. What circumstances in your life do you either find as clear evidence of God's favor that you're unwilling to forsake or that you love them to the degree that they're interfering with your relationship with God? And I think about simple things like security in our work or job, our friends and our relationships. I mean, if I could tell you guys the amount of tears that have been shed when we think about leaving our friends in Fort Collins and our kids' friends, it's it's heart-wrenching to talk about those things. And it brings to a reality, what do we love most? And it's a hard thing. It is a hard thing. And here's what I will say all of us as you look at that and look at your life what is it for you because every one of you has and if you think i've got nothing i'm clean slate i'm wide open i'm blank check to god you're a liar you're a liar and i'm telling you to identify those things and this isn't just an old testament concept that i'm trying to draw into your present reality this this was in the new testament as well Um, jesus dealt with this head on Right, And a lot of people have butchered and abused this passage from Mark chapter 10. Sometimes it's called the rich young ruler and have turned into things that it doesn't necessarily mean. But let's just go there for a second. Mark 10, and he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, probably a lie. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions now it's really easy for us to take that and look at the front half of that and say hey every christian go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and go follow jesus but that really isn't the message that this is trying to convey the message is the end of the conversation he walked away sad jesus wasn't worth it to him he walked away disheartened he walked away with all of his possessions. It didn't. It says he had great possessions, but there is a concept that's missing in the fact that he had them. He loved them. He loved them too much to walk away from them. So he walked away disheartened, and he walked away lost. And he walked away in the face of the one who could save him and give him treasure in heaven, who has promised to give a hundredfold for every possession he forsakes on this age and in the next age, and he walked away disheartened. And I'm telling you, that is his plant. His possessions were merely his plant that God had given him and blessed him with, and he had fallen in love with the plant. He had fallen in love with his possessions, and Jesus was no longer worth it and worth what the cost would mean to walk away from those things. And again, I think we all know this, and we all feel it. And as I, let me just tell you, any discomfort you might be feeling right now, I feel at times 10 talking about it to you. I'm always terrified I'm terrified of these kind of passages. I read David Platt's Radical years ago, and it messed my family up pretty bad, and I had to, like, recover from that almost. So these kind of things terrify me, but shame on me if we don't look at the truthfulness of it and what the Lord's worth. Shame on us if we can sit in a second-hour class and learn about Adoniram Judson and what he faced in an attempt to take the gospel to Burma and not feel at least some sense of, like, I admire that. Which is honestly a personal conviction. We ought to feel those things. Now, should everybody get up out of their chair and rush to the airports and head to Burma? By no means. That would be really unwise, and our church would die immediately. That would, that would be bad. But should we be seeking what the Lord desires for us in such a way as to not look around and say, you know, when things get hard, does it mean God's absent? Do you not think that we know when we land in Durango, for example, that it's going to be really hard and dark? for a season and a real challenge and we'll probably look around and see the christians in their caves and be like gosh is this the lord is he with us it will be a challenge moving on the next verse verse 14 and the lord turned to him and said go in this might of yours and save israel from the hand of midian do i not send you and he said to him please lord how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm adding too much voice and I just picture him whining. In Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Big idea number three is that the sinner, weak in spirit and low in confidence, is God's mighty man of valor. We think about the big truth in this being that God is glorified in the weakness of his obedient people. This is like a shred of that. That's like a necessary truth. Because if weak obedience has to have some kind of power behind it. Weak, God calls him mighty man of valor. That was insufficient for Gideon. And he came back with, no, 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 I'm from the weakest. I'm from the weakest clan. And so I ask you today, as you think about your upcoming week and you journal in these things, to consider... What weaknesses are you not taking to the Lord to allow him to say, oh, you're my mighty man of valor? Now, This is as prosperity gospel as Buddy Samson will probably ever get. The Lord desires to do amazing things through your life. He desires to use you as a mighty man of valor. Maybe in a way that's very public and maybe in a way that's in borderline obscurity and then everything in between. It starts in our homes, It goes into our cul-de-sacs, and it goes from our cul-de-sacs to the community, and from the community to the state, and from the state to the country, and the country to the world. And mighty men of valor and women of valor fill these church pews right now. But we have our weaknesses, and I think a lot of those weaknesses we really think we can justify. And I have been there, and let me just name a few. Your sins from your past is probably the single biggest Most people, when we talk about God doing big things in their life, one of the first things that come up is the truth. They will word it differently. You know, I just don't, I don't know. I've done a lot, and I've done, I just, I don't, there's an unwillingness to be like, are you kidding? I'm a sinner. I'm terrible. God can't use me. I'm awful. You should see how I lived in high school, in college, three months ago. God can't use me. And this is a lie. That is a weakness that is true, and that's why this big idea contains the word sinner, because we're all sinners, and every single mighty man of valor God has ever used as a sinner. In fact, one of them, who was probably the single greatest mighty man of valor after Jesus Christ himself, the Apostle Paul, called himself the biggest sinner, the chief of sinners. So I ask you today, is, are, is it the sins from your past? Are there sins you're clinging to that you're not repenting of that you know present a weakness and make you unable to carry out God's will through you as a mighty man or woman of valor? What about your lack of Bible knowledge? How often I hear people say, you know, I don't really know the Scripture that well. You think God can't use people that don't know the Scripture well? He grabbed a couple of fishermen out of the ocean and said, I'm going to make you fishermen of men. And they had to be thinking, we're nobodies, man. We don't know this stuff. We haven't, we're not rabbis. Your lack of experience in ministry, your lack of spiritual maturity, because you're kind of a baby Christian, and this is, some of this is really new for you. What weaknesses are you withholding from God instead of saying, God, I am weak here. Will you do something with this and make me a mighty man of valor? Because you can. And I would ask you to fill in this blank as you think today, and as you journal this week, fill in this blank. Lord, I would follow you anywhere, I would fight for you, I would risk all for you, but I'm too blank, or I'm not blank enough. What would you put in there? You don't have to tell me. You want to tell me, catch me after church, catch me outside. Well, you can tell me. You can talk about it, okay? That'd have been a major, major sidetrack there. Let's talk about it. I'm, I'm dead serious. Let's talk about it. Let's talk through it, what it is. And we can have that conversation, but fill in that blank and be honest with yourself. And there will be, then you can take that to the Lord and watch him. Watch what he does. And let me tell you why you can watch what he does because the Lord intends for you to be weak. That's how he gets the glory. This story is about God. If David would have been six foot 10, 250 pounds of muscle to tackle, tackle Goliath, David gets the glory. David was a kid with a sling. God gets the glory. God has taken that which is weak to shame the strong. That sounds weird to us, but I'm telling you all this is true. God will not receive the glory if the most powerful people are the one that take his glory. Name to the nations. They will get the glory. The best speakers, the smartest theologians, the whatever you want to call it, the most spiritually mature, the people who've been, I think about a John Piper. I I, I love John Piper. I love to listen to John Piper. I love his ministry. I love his love for the glory of God. And I listen to him and I read his stuff and I, and I think it's awesome. But I got to tell you, there's a part of me that thinks John Piper's relationship with Jesus started super young and he was and he's extremely intelligent. And I look at him and I think, how has God used John Piper's weaknesses? He's used his strengths, clearly. How is he used what was he weak at? And the best thing I can come up with is he used to stutter really bad. and I hated talking in front of people. I'm like, that's his weakness? I love John Piper. But if we compare ourselves to that, we miss the opportunity to let our weakness bring God great glory as he works through us as his mighty men of valor last big idea god has given you his word stop seeking signs quick plug for a music group that i love beautiful eulogy if you've never heard of them you got to check it out they're basically rappers and it's kind of comical you should listen to it imagine in your brain what they look like because we all stereotype rappers and then after you have imagined in your brain what they look like go look at pictures of them and you'll be like this must be the wrong group this doesn't make sense it's funny They have an awesome song called Symbols and Signs. I want all of you to listen to it if you get a chance. It's great music to listen to with your kids. It's Christian. It is awesome. But they talk about, in this song, they just talk about, they criticize the seeking of signs. And I look at this passage, and let's go ahead and read it, in verse 17, so we're moving right along. And he said to him, this is Gideon talking to the angel of the Lord. Now, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So, what's he do? He makes a meal, he puts it on the rock, and God burns it up. And then he goes and tears down the other gods like he said that he would. And there's a part of this that, like, this guy just had an angel of the Lord show up. And then he's like, Well, and the angel of the Lord is merely saying, Here's what you can do to be obedient to God. And he's like, Yeah, prove to me that you're God. So that happens, and God does it. Then we fast forward and we see in verses 36 to 40. So jump down. I just summarize what happens in between. He tears down the astropoles and these things, and he does what he's supposed to do. Okay. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand. Okay. He had already just done this. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. He rose the next morning and squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let it be there. We dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the, all the ground there was dew. So basically, Gideon says, after what he has witnessed, and what he has already done, and God, consuming with fire on a rock this meal with an angel of the Lord present, Gideon then says, make my blanket wet and I'll, I'll do what you said. Is this not exactly what we do? Is this not? Do we not say, God, what do you want from me? I'll do it, but first prove it to me that it's really you. And God, ha, he has to be in heaven going, prove it. At your life what have you done what do you have that you haven't received what do you mean what else do i have to do to prove it to you at this point you want me to make a blanket wet you want some special sign you want some song to come on you want some special words you want to have a thought you want to throw the bible open and point at it oh it didn't line up with what i was hoping god would say i went to lamentation shoot This is exactly what we do. It's what Gideon did. And I'll be honest with you. I had to read around this passage because I was confused. Why did God do it? Why did not go, God not just, no. Why did he do it? Twice in the ESV study notes, it literally said he stooped to the level of Gideon to grant his request. And as I read commentators, I could not find a good explanation for why God actually did it, except That it acknowledged once again Gideon's weakness of his uncertainty, his insecurity, his need for assurance. Does that not sound like us? Is that not the reason we seek for signs? Because we're scared. We're scared of doing the wrong thing. Maybe even more so, sometimes we're scared of doing the right thing and not working out as we have built up in our mind. This is what we do. We seek signs. When people ask us, I mean, you know, I'm looking around here fast. There's a guy in this church um, who I love dearly. Who, when talking to him about his family and these things and i um you know we we get to chatting about adoption how'd you know you're supposed to adopt and his answer was bible says you should adopt and take care of orphans and widows if you can and we ought to do that and let's be clear here church god doesn't just give us that mandate he gives us that mandate in the context of the fact that we sit here all as adopted people so let's not let us not be fooled every one of us is adopted all of us adopted into the family of God none of you were born Christian, born into Christianity even if you started going to the church from the day you were born, like Brittany Biddle's kid who I literally think came to church like three days after that kid was out of the womb, that kid's in church now, that's awesome does not make, does not make Porter a Christian we're Christians because we got adopted into Christianity and in the, that very context, God choosing us and making us his own, God says do the same on the earth care in this way And we ought to do that. We ought to care in this way. But what what was the signs he sought? Read the Bible. He read the Bible. Buddy, how do you know your family is supposed to go to Durango? We read the Bible. Go make disciples of all nations. And listen, do not, there is a very strong urge for me to draw a straight line from this text to go to Durango with us. Okay, I'm not doing that. Even though I said that, I'm not doing that. That would be wrong. It would be unbiblical. It would be an abuse of what this is about, and I know that to be true. And the last thing I want to do is stand up here and, with the appearance of some degree of righteousness because we're going to move our family. I don't want to do that either. That's not the case at all. I simply want to make this point. In whatever way, whatever way you're pursuing the Lord's will for your life, it's from his word. It's not from signs. It's not from clouds in the sky or rainbows or lyrics at a song at the right moment. Can the Lord use those things sometimes to affirm or encourage us? Absolutely. Most of you have heard the story of the guy who bought all our farm equipment in Fort Collins who shows up with basically a blank check and says, I'll buy it all. We had to sell it all to pay off the USDA. And, it came, and he's from Fort Collins and he's part of our church network and we had no idea. And he said, that was an affirmation. That felt like a sign to me, okay? I mean, I like got cold chills and scared when it happened. I was like, ooh that feels supernatural when we seek that supernatural don't seek that read your bible read your bible do what it says that's all that's been asked of us that's all we ought to do in the first place and as we seek the will of the lord and we seek what god wants as gideon was don't seek signs seek the word seek counsel from other christians pursue what god has laid out very clearly in his scripture you know my son Tripp had an awesome little, I'm, I got his permission to call him out, an awesome little epiphany the other morning. He was reading Philippians chapter 4. This is just, was it yesterday morning, morning before? And he said, Dad, this is weird. We do the Acts prayer at night, but this says that t- to take, to, with prayer and thanksgiving, take your requests to God or your supplications to God. What does it mean? How do you take your prayer with thanksgiving? And I said, I don't know. Let's look, look a little bigger. Let's broaden out the text there. And he reads back, and it's like, do not be anxious about anything, but... And immediately he goes, oh, so it's like, to make you not be anxious, you're thankful for what he's already done, and that's how you pursue him in prayer. And I was like, that is exactly right. It's uh, in the context of being anxious. Don't be anxious. Be thankful. Look what he's done. Now pursue him in prayer. It was that simple. One verse light bulb goes off and this is how and god has and intends to build his church and to meet the requests of his people who were seeking his will over and over and over it's how he does it he does it through his word he does it through his word read his word pray over his word ask it to for him to illuminate what he wants from you in your life in the context of scripture and he will do it he will not fail if you do that so moving on wrapping up the actual cool part of gideon that everybody loves to study Gideon gets his men together, 10, 20, 30,000. God has these interesting requests, shrinks them down to 10,000, shrinks them down again to 300, and basically says, with these 300 men, you're going to conquer the Midianites. And Gideon is probably thinking, like, this is absurd, right? But this is what God does. Why? Because if he'd have had 30,000 men, then he gets the glory. But he had 300 men, and he goes, and he, the most interesting battle strategy ever he blows his trumpet in the jars and they start killing each other the midianites do remarkable brilliant and they they conquer the midianites and god gets the glory because it doesn't make sense and guys what i want to just leave you with and as you i hope can tell at this moment god gets the glory this this sermon is intended for the church for believers this passage is intended for believers there are people sitting here who maybe are not believers And I'm hoping that in the context of not being a leaver, you look at that and think, I'm weak, I'm a sinner, I could be a mighty man of valor. And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely, but not without first trusting Christ. You are apart from God in the absence of the gospel, and Jesus Christ can reconcile you to God by your acknowledgement of your sin and your weakness and your dishonoring of God. He died on the cross for your sin. He rose from the dead on the third day that you will do the same in a newness of life now in this present age and then ultimately in glory in heaven. This is the message of the gospel that Christ has done this and in that message, in that truth, he is calling you in to a purpose, a purpose to use and leverage your life for the sake of his glory and his kingdom in your weakness. God is the only being that when he pursues his own glory selfishly, his people get the greatest benefit on earth every other being who pursues glory comes at the cost of people not god so i invite you this morning if you don't know god if you don't know god in jesus christ in the face of jesus christ that you would trust him and you would say i need this i desire that life and more importantly i know i can't get there in the absence of the blood of christ let's pray Lord, we are weak and we are sinners. We look in the mirror and we flip-flop back and forth from pridefully seeing somebody that's made it in life. We look at our circumstances, our security, our safety, our, the simplicity of our life, our hobbies, our interests, our recreation, fun, our family, our friendships. We see it all, God, and we look at it and there's a part of us that thinks we've, we've done it. We've earned it. We've built it. God, and then there's the other part where we look and we say, we couldn't do anything else because we're sinners. We're weak. We're puny. Have too much baggage. Don't have enough knowledge, God. We, we come up with the ways as people have for centuries, for millennia at this point. And Lord, I ask that you would, at Overland Church and in your church universally, God, you would free us from that lie and that we would see that you intend in our weakness to bring great glory to yourself as the gospel makes its way to the ends of the earth, Lord. It's a hard season for many of us. We're going through trial, suffering, pain, and God, it's seeking you is sometimes just the most that we can do, and we ask that you would answer, God, and that you would, from the beginning, reveal to us your promises in Romans 5, that you will We should rejoice in our suffering because it's producing perseverance and character in us, God. Um, Because we know that at the end of the day, it will be a testimony to your goodness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.